unexplained deaths and mysteries with Deborah Davis. Hi, everybody, and welcome to our very first podcast. Today, we're actually going to be looking at the death of David Plunkett, and this is such a really interesting case. It's connected to all the deaths at the Manchester Ship Canal, of which there's been over a hundred since 2008. But first of all, I'd like to introduce you to two of my very good friends, Ian and Chris. So over to you guys. Hi, my name's Chris Ward. Up until 18 months ago, I was in the police where I'd served for 31 years. I've been a detective for most of my career. I spent six years as the head of the major crime unit. So that's the murder unit investigating homicide, uh, serial and linked sexual offences and dealing with some of the most serious crimes that you can investigate. Okay, thanks, Chris. And and, and hi, Debbie. I mean, how do I follow that? Uh, Folks, I'm Ian Kirk, a postgraduate criminologist, journalist, feature writer, holder of a qualifying law degree and former senior police officer. Phew, that's almost a tongue twister. Debbie and I first met when I wrote a feature about her for FHM. Through our friendship, we discussed various unanswered phenomena. What better way was it to challenge mainstream investigative inquiry, we concluded, than to bring together the psychic and policing worlds. Having known Chris for several years, I had no hesitation in inviting him to contribute to and celebrate our spirit of curiosity. Our unique approach will see us confront a series of mysteries that remain unresolved. Keeping these situations active may elicit new information from you. A memory jogged by our analysis may lead to a vital breakthrough. Should this trigger an important recollection, I'd urge you to contact Crime Stoppers immediately. Otherwise, we invite you to listen carefully to the discussion, apply new learning and reach your own verdict. Debbie and I will announce ours at the beginning of the next podcast. Chris will remain neutral only because the job of the police is and always will be to present the facts and leave the adjudication to others. So, Debbie, I invite you to frame our first investigation. So the case that we're looking at today with David Plunkett, David was only 21 years old. He'd gone out with his friend to the Daytona racetrack in Manchester, and he was apparently really looking forward to this. You know, there was nothing at all to think that there was anything wrong with him that day. He was happy. He spoke to his parents before he left the house. In fact, his last words to his dad were, I'll see you tomorrow, dad. So this is the 17th of April, 2004. David was around a month off completing a four-year degree. But you know what? He went out that night with his friend and was never seen again until he was pulled out of the Manchester ship canal two weeks later. So David's mom describes him as being a very loving, very affectionate, very kind soul with a great sense of humour and a great generosity of spirit. His friendships meant an awful lot to him, and he was just a very happy guy. So I don't think that whatever happened to him was caused by his mental state in any way, shape, or form. But that night that he went out with his friend Michael, they'd gone out to the Daytona racetrack, and in the mix of the night, they'd somehow lost contact with each other. So what happened then was around 20 past one in the morning, Michael phoned David's mum, Anne. She heard her phone ring. She answered it. 
And Michael explained that he'd lost contact with David. He didn't know where he was and obviously was trying to find him. So Anne said, I'll put the phone down and I'll ring him myself, which is what she did. And she said it took about three attempts to get hold of David before he finally answered the phone. The thing is, though, when he did answer, he didn't speak. And the first thing that David's mum noticed was the quietness of wherever David was. It was virtually silent. And all David's mum could hear was that he was walking along and that was evident from his breathing. Anne asked him, did he, did he know where he was or did he recognise anything? But there was absolutely no response. Then seven to eight minutes into the call, there was what she described as ghastly screaming. David's mum, obviously she was upset hearing that. She started crying and she handed the phone to David's dad, Michael, while she rang 999 off her phone. David's dad said that the screaming that he heard made him feel as though David had seen something which had absolutely terrified him. At 4.30 a.m., the phone went dead. David's mum said the screaming and the howling was unearthly. That was the only way she could describe it. Now, where David had to walk to to get to the canal from the Daytona racetrack was down a side road. And CCTV that was in use at the time was compromised heavily by lack of visibility due to really poor weather that night. And when David was found, he was found with marks on his body that were not self-inflicted and couldn't have been caused by him sliding into the canal. It looked as though at some point David had tried to defend himself. And there were marks on his arm and lower body, which would tie in with some form of struggle. The pathologist said that may have happened, though, as he went into the water. David's parents disagree. The interesting thing is David's phone was found on the steep embankment next to his glasses, which he wore all the time, not just for reading. It's an eight to 10 foot drop over the railings into the water. And there was no splashing sound heard by either of David's parents or the 999 operator who was listening on David's dad's phone. Despite the police doing a search and finding nothing whilst David was missing, Anne, David's mum's brother, found David's phone and glasses not far from where David's body was actually found. And they found them on the embankment and they were placed together. So this is just a complete mystery. David goes out, he's happy. He really valued his friendships. He's going out with his friend, Michael. He has a great time. They lose touch with each other on that night out. And for some reason, David, even if he was looking to get a taxi to go home or whatever, he ends up walking down this little side street where you couldn't get a taxi towards the canal. And, and then that's it. That's the end of him. And, the, and he doesn't even speak on the phone when his mum's talking to him, even though she can hear him breathing. And he ends up two weeks later found dead in the canal. 
Debbie, thank you. A, a very descriptive and compelling account. Uh, from a criminologist's point of view, my, my first sort of thoughts are, are canals are, by their very nature, places of risk and, you know, can cause injury and death are probable outcomes. But Chris, if I can turn to you now in terms of a missing person inquiry, what would the process of the police engage with in those initial time of this report, particularly given the gravity of the phone call that the parents received? Well, there's a whole number of things that the police would be doing. I think the first thing says, you know, most people that are reported missing to the police are found very quickly. Um, so the first thing the police would be doing is grading the the level of risk to the person. So level of risk is very young, very old, and then you have this gap in the middle, and that's really about vulnerability. So how vulnerable is the person um, and what level of investigation that it requires. But having done that, the initial inquiries will be to look at David's background, where you would normally expect him to be, sort of his state of mind, speaking obviously to the people who were with him that evening. Debbie mentioned about CCTV. That's really vital in, you know, looking at where somebody has been, where they're going, and also who was the last person to see them, who who was the last person to see them and, and, and the circumstances in which they last saw them. So Telephones is another one now, mobile telephone um, inquiries that can be carried out. So looking at what calls were made from David's telephone, mobile telephone, looking at the positioning of it so the police can, through the mobile phone providers, ask for data that will doesn't pinpoint where somebody's been, but it will work from the masts that provide the signals to the phones. And you can then start to see where that phone was, um, and then also, more importantly, when the phone powered down. So did it power down because it was manually turned up, turned off? Was it powered down because the battery was flat? Looking at where that happened, and that gives you then some areas to start searching. They saw his location. They actually checked, and they saw that around the time he was on the phone to his mom, he was actually around the vicinity there, you know, of where he ended up. They, they saw, they knew that that's where he was. Isn't there a presumption, though? Young lad, you know, out on the town, is that lessened in terms of police importance? What's the sort of presumption, uh, given the age and the location and what David was up to that evening? Well, it's not lessened. And in fact, we know from history that, sadly, lots of young adults, if you like, that do go missing in those circumstances, sometimes do finish up having drowned because they fall into water. Um, because they're intoxicated. So I don't think it would lessen it, but the the inquiries that the police would carry out, the people that they would speak to, um, and what they start to establish from that would then, you know, reduce or increase the the threat, I think, or the risk. The you know, the overarching thing that I would say about missing people is that it's very difficult to go missing as an adult without leaving some kind of what I would describe as footprint. So by footprint I mean uh, telephone data and also banking data. The longer somebody's missing, you'd expect them to contact people or you would expect them to have popped up somewhere. So either contact with the police or or social care or, or something that you would need in order to survive. Do you know what I'm wondering, Chris, and perhaps you might be able to answer this. You know, when he was out with Michael at, at the Daytona racetrack and obviously he was drinking alcohol, we know that because at post-mortem it was found that he did have 
I think it was just over twice the legal limit, you know, of alcohol in his blood. Um, but that was at post-mortem after he'd been gone, you know, for two weeks. So I don't know whether levels would change over the two weeks or not, but we know he had alcohol in his system and we know he was drinking alcohol that night. But, you know, if he's, say he was spiked whilst he was out, would that being spiked, I don't know the kind of drugs that are involved in, in spiking people. I have no clue about that whatsoever at all. But if he was spiked, say, would that account for the terrible unearthly screaming and not actually speaking to his mum, you know, on the phone, etc.? Would that account for the silence as well and just walking? Because I don't know the effect of those drugs on people. You might do. Well, I, I can't answer that question definitively because I'm obviously I'm not a medical expert. What I can say is that the, the sort of drugs you're talking about, so rohypnol, or uh, the, these are drugs that are designed to 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 put people into a sort of semi consciousness, so that and normally that is so that people can then sexually abuse them, and it does affect people. They appear very drunk, they're incoherent, their memory goes. So that's always a possibility in terms of discovering that in someone. What I do know is that the the toxicology it's very you've got very short space of time to get a sample of either urine or blood. So, Chris, moving it on then from a missing person inquiry, now two weeks later the body is discovered. This is now a murder investigation. What would you do as the senior investigating officer? Well, it's an unexplained death. That would be described as by the police. I mean, it wouldn't be classed as a murder, of course, until uh, all the circumstances were known. And, you know, a big part of that, would, of course, would be the post-mortem examination of the person's body and looking for a cause of death. So the first thing, of course, is to... You know, recover David's body, being mindful of that that is effectively a crime scene. So, looking to uh, any evidence immediately from visually from the body, swabs that would be taken, and then the the more detailed examination by the pathologist. The first thing is you know you're looking for a cause of death. Also, that's that area is important um, where he was found. So you're looking for signs of a disturbance or any other evidence. And I note that the mobile telephone was found two weeks later. I think you're saying. And that's quite unusual that nobody had seen that before yeah. that time. And then winding back really to, you know, you're looking to establish when when did he die? So that, that again would be toxicology and 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 the other evidence that would be gathered by the forensic post-mortem. And then putting everything together, really, all the inquiries that you can do to try and find out exactly what happened. Doesn't it concern you though, Chris, as an experienced murder squad detective, that you talk about disturbance, yet at the scene, as Debbie alludes to, there was order. There was glasses and there was a mobile telephone. There, there, there was a, a degree of order rather than disorder. And I suppose I'm struggling with the suggestion. It was an accident. What what does that say to you? Well, you know, there have been cases where people have placed their, their items down very tidily and then gone off and committed suicide. That that has happened. What's possibly more strange or, or more concerning is that I mean I don't know how how public that area is, but you would expect somebody to have seen a pair of glasses and a and a mobile phone uh, there particularly, and of course um, I would have expected a search to have been carried out. So that's the location of the phone powered down. Some kind of search in that area as well that would have found those things. Okay, so so there is a an oddity that, that, that you're sort of picking up. Before I, I come back to you, Debbie, um, Chris, you mentioned suicides and 
there's some quite distressing figures. Uh, The last stats from 2019 uh, in the UK, there were 5,691 suicides, of which three quarters were men. And and, and certainly David, as a a young man, fits this this awful profile. So in terms of the likelihood of it either not being an accident, the, the second thing to perhaps look at is he does fit the category of potential suicide. So, Debbie, I'd like to come back to you now and, and, and really focus on what is this story telling you? What, what what are you picking up? We've looked at some of the sort of perhaps explanations from a, a straightforward mainstream inquiry, but but what is this telling you? Well, I think it's incredibly strange. I think it's highly unlikely that David committed suicide, especially with David's dad saying that there were marks on his body that were not self-inflicted and couldn't have been caused by sliding into the canal. So I don't know, the whole thing seems very odd. But what's particularly concerning for me is that terrible howling and screaming that David's mum describes as being unholy. You know, that that's just absolutely horrific, isn't it? And the 999 operator that heard that, uh, unfortunately, it wasn't recorded because the recording system wasn't working on that night. And she actually resigned not long after because it really affected her so badly because she heard heard all that, that terrifying howling and screaming. So from me, from my perspective, I can't help but think about the fact that the Manchester Ship Canal, when it was created, there were over 130 deaths during the, the actual construction of the canal. And there were many, many, many hundreds more who were so severely disabled by you know, being a part of the construction that they could no longer work and could barely even survive. There was an awful lot of sadness, an awful lot of heartache in the construction of that. And When you also look at the fact of the buildings nearby being allegedly so very, very haunted, you have even like the quarry set, for instance, where to this day, I mean, they moved to another building there, which is, you know, along the Manchester Ship Canal. And some of of the cast are terrified to, to actually go to certain areas, like where the lockers are, for instance, on their own. Absolutely petrified. In fact, I think there was actually a show that featured the set of Corey that was like a kind of ghost hunt, you know, like a celebrity kind of ghost hunt place. And and it showed just how how quite active it is and how scared, you know, members of the cast are to walk around in that building. It's not just them. There's loads of buildings there that I've been told about that people say they're definitely haunted. Something is definitely going on in that area. Do we have a Manchester pusher in terms of a living, speaking human being that's walking around pushing people in? I think if we did, that by now, I think we would have caught him by now or somebody would have seen him at least. And, you know, there would be a description from somebody, but there isn't. So I can't help but think that this could potentially, possibly be something demonic in nature that is very much disgruntled at all the death 
in the creation of the canal, et cetera, et cetera. Something's triggered it, something's set it off and it's out there and it's actually causing harm to, to living, breathing human beings. That would account for the terrible, unholy screaming and howling that was heard. It could also account for the silence as well from David whilst he was walking, because these things do have the power to completely control you, not just terrify you, but they can stop you from speaking and they can get you from one place to another in the blink of an eye and definitely into water. So I don't know. My thoughts are, it's highly likely, I think, that some of these deaths are down to something supernatural. In summary, you're telling me then that a previous horror is imprinted at the scene. It could be in the buildings, but certainly remains in situ. There's an emotional footprint that's left behind. And you see that in houses where there's been murders that have taken place. It's an emotional footprint. And lots of people that live in places where terrible things have happened report incidences of of ghosts and ghostly behavior and things moving on their own, et cetera. And it's only at that point when they consult somebody like me and we do the research on the land that we discover something horrific happened there. So I see that all the time and I have done for donkey's years. So to me, yeah, I think there is something, maybe not in all cases, obviously, but I think there is something about this case that seems to be paranormal. Back to you, Chris. What are your thoughts, knowing about the background of this particular death and other deaths proximate within the Manchester Canal? What's your thoughts on the potential of a serial killer being at large? Well, I think, you know, serial killers are, you know, that's very rare. I think that's the first thing to say, but not, 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 uh, not an impossible theory. I think... Um, you know, the, the the difficulty with deaths in water is that um, they're very hard to prove or disprove that there's any foul play. So, you know, going back to what I was saying earlier, one of the things that you'd be looking for from the pathology is, you know, was the person dead before they went in the water? So you, you can, you know, pathologists can tell you that from inhaling water and, and the state of the lungs. You know, are there any marks on the body would be consistent with death before the body went in the water? Because, of course, that's a wholly different ball game. But of course, if I pushed you into the water uh, and you were very drunk, it's, it's almost impossible to prove that somebody's been pushed into, into water unless somebody's seen it. I do know that some of the deaths there have included people who are in the water, obviously they're dead, but they haven't inhaled any water. So not consistent with drowning as being the actual, you know, manner of death. And yet they, their inquests have, have been ruled as death by drowning and yet no water was found in the lungs. Well, I mean, I think, I think if a pathologist is saying that it's not a drowning, then that would be highly suspicious because, of course, then you're looking at the possibility of the person having died before they went into the water. But they're not saying it's not drowning. They're saying it is drowning. I can think of one of one case in particular where that's that's this young lad's mum's point, which is that there was no water found in his lungs, and yet his he was also ruled as you know an accidental death by drowning. Let's look at the the, the howling telephone call. That, that, that seems to be one of the crucial bits of evidence. And 
as a criminologist, and I've got to sort of look at it from a, from a different prism. And, and generally, uh, human memory is, is flawed. That, that, that's, that's one of the first sort of issues around um, human uh, memory. Unconscious transference occurs where a different memory becomes combined or confused with another, and it's highly likely during an emotionally charged event such as this telephone call. I can't even imagine how the parents felt hearing that from their son or presuming it was their son. So this fits the category of a very highly emotionally charged event. So things can happen to our memories. And very often assumptions made during the actual event, the encoding of that information by applying existing knowledge, i.e. that sounds, uh, you know, a, a terror scream Sounds very much like I've heard on a horror movie. That's that's where the links. But Ian, it was heard by the nine 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 operator too, and she described it in the same manner. That's three people that heard it. Three people all recalling it the same way. Let me just test that then with with uh, with Chris. Thank you, Debbie. How do you, as a police officer, then when you're investigating these uh, these claims, Chris? How do you validate whether someone's lying or or their account is flawed? How how do you deliver on what Debbie's just said there? Well, Debbie's pretty much to answer the question for me because one is about the proximity of the recollection to the report. And by that, I mean, you know, how, how soon is it that somebody's reported what's happened? So that's that's the first thing that gives it got more credibility. But of course, the more people that have heard it, and then you have an independent person here, of course, who is the call operator, sadly it wasn't recorded, who, who was very clear about about that scream. So I would say, you know, very little doubt in my mind he was screaming. The, the issue is, why was he screaming? His dad thinks it's because of something horrific that he saw, which I think falls in line with my theory that this is something a bit more than a living, breathing human. Okay, guys, I think our, our sort of time is is, is coming uh, towards the end. I, I thoroughly enjoyed this first discussion and it certainly made me think. I think when I first saw the, the reports, I... I formed an immediate opinion. I think I may well have changed that, but I will uh, give myself a few days to reflect on that before I give my verdict on the next podcast. But uh, Debbie and, and Chris, thank you very much for your analysis. And before I come back to you, Debbie, to uh, bring things to a conclusion, I'd just like to say our investigation has covered some far-reaching territory. And in bringing things to a conclusion, I invite you, the listener, to reflect upon our submissions and reach your own judgment. I'd recommend you evaluate your own opinion with a counter-narrative. Argue against yourself, guys. And if it passes this assessment, I'd encourage you to share your viewpoint with Debbie via social media. Debbie and I will declare our verdict at the start of the next podcast. But finally, Debbie, over to you to bring today's podcast to a close. Thank you, Ian. So thank you, everybody, for listening. That was our very, very first podcast. Wow. I think that went well. Now, if you have anything that you want to add to this case, you know, your thoughts or you know something more about it that we don't know, then please get in touch by emailing hello at unexplaineddeaths.com. And of course, I will also see your comments over on my Facebook page and Instagram too. So feel free to also let me know on there whatever you think may have gone on regarding David Plunkett's death. But thank you for joining us today and stay tuned because our next podcast will be coming soon. <laughs>